If I were to ask each of you to just close your eyes and picture Jesus, if you actually did that, if you closed your eyes and tried to picture Jesus, most of you would have a very similar image. Uh, The reason for this is that in most churches, hanging somewhere in the hallways are a gilded framed picture of Jesus, a 33-year-old man with long brown hair to his shoulders, a well-manicured mustache or goatee of some kind for some reason, some rosy red cheeks, blue eyes, which would be completely impossible for a Middle Eastern man to have blue eyes, but that's all right. We just put them on there anyway. Blue eyes, a gorgeous white robe with some kind of purple sash. It's tied together with just a simple belt because he's not a cliche fastinista. A simple belt, some Birkenstocks, but no socks with them because he's too cool for that. And you would see him walking through some kind of nature scape. And if you were to be honest with yourself, that is the picture that you saw in your mind. When you closed your eyes and when you pictured Jesus, you saw a 33-year-old middle-aged white man. That's what you saw. And I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that. Our culture has typified Jesus in a way that we understand and resonate. Like, I get that. That's cool. Here's my issue. I think that view of Jesus distracts from the truth of who he is. While it's very real that Jesus came from heaven, he humbled himself and took on flesh, and he walked this earth for 33 years. While that's a very true statement, while he probably looked somewhat like those pictures, that's not all that he is. He's not a middle-aged white guy. He is a conquering king. He is our Savior and our Lord, and I think we become just a little too familiar with this guy that we can picture that looks a little bit like our crazy cousin. I, I, I just don't think that that really resonates with who Jesus is. He is a conqueror. That that Jesus that we picture, that Jesus can overcome anything. Through his own muscle and his own grit and his own determination, he can walk through any circumstance and you walk through it with him. But that Jesus that we picture when we close our eyes, that Jesus we walk side by side with, equal in power, equal in strength, equal in ability. We need Jesus with us, but we really just kind of do our own thing. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus is a conquering king. He sits enthroned at the right hand of God the Father, and he is not just someone who gets through. He conquers. And it's imperative, imperative that we know him as such. That we do not become so familiar with Jesus that he becomes just another guy walking down the street. Because he's a conquering king. To conquer something means to master it to have complete authority and dominion over. That's what Jesus is. Jesus has conquered all things. So today, what I want to do is just look a little bit at his life. And I want to paint a picture, not of this meek overcomer, but of this conquering king. So before we do that, let's just pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. Father, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we just ask that you would open our eyes ears and our hearts to receive it, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us through it, that we would learn uh, more of who you are, and that we would be transformed by that truth, that we would worship you because of who you are, that we would follow you because there's no one else to follow, 
that we would serve you because it is right to do. God, that we would just seek you first in your Son, in your righteousness, in your kingdom, and let everything else just fall into place. May we see Jesus for who he is, a conquering king. Let us do so right now in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Matthew chapter 4, I'm not going to read these passages, just, just some stories to help you see that he doesn't just overcome stuff, he doesn't just get through. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, hasn't eaten or drank anything for 40 days, a supernatural fast. He's hungry, to say the least. Satan shows up and offers him bread, tempts him with bread, says, just follow me, worship me, I'll give you this bread. Jesus says, nope. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes scripture to overcome that temptation, but he doesn't just overcome it. He doesn't just squeak through. He conquers it because two more times then Satan says, do this and I'll give you this. Do this and I'll do this. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Finally he says, get out. Satan flees. That's not just overcoming temptation. That is conquering temptation. It allows this to be written about Jesus in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest. That's Jesus. He's our high priest. We don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses when it comes to dealing with temptation. He can empathize. He can understand our weaknesses when it comes to temptation. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. He conquered it. The end of Mark chapter 4, all of Mark chapter 5, there's these amazing stories that talk about the power of Jesus. The power-packed section of the Gospel of Mark, it ends in Mark chapter 4 with Jesus on a boat. He's asleep. A squall comes up. Fierce waves, fierce wind. The disciples are straining at the oars, doing everything within their power just to get back to land. The trip is over. They're trying to save their lives and Jesus is taking a little cat nap up in the front of the boat. The disciples go, get up, Jesus. We need you to grab an oar, grab a bucket, do anything but sleep right now. Just do something. Jesus stands up. I believe that overcoming would have been to grab an oar or a bucket. But he says, quiet, be still, and the wind and the waves obey him. And the disciples don't know what to do. They're flipping out. But they realize it's time to worship because he does not just overcome. He conquers the wind and the waves and the storms. They get on shore. A man named Jairus comes up and says, My daughter is sick and she's going to die. Jesus, you're the only one who can heal her. Jesus goes, Let's go. Let's go. Let's go see what I can do. On the way, this woman who had been suffering with the disease for 12 years, she knows that Jesus is her only hope, and she says, if I can just touch the bottom of his robe, if I can just grab that beautiful white garment, <laughs> I will be healed. She sneaks in through the crowd, falls on her feet, grabs the bottom of the garment. Immediately she's healed. 12 years worth of physicians, couldn't do it. Jesus does it without even knowing it. Jesus goes, some power just left me. Hey, who just touched me? The disciples go, Jesus, you're crazy. There are thousands of people touching you. She goes, no, something just happened. And then you see this woman, sheepish, scared, terrified, but healed, going, I touched you. And Jesus, knowing that she, after 12 years of suffering, had been completely healed by him. Because he doesn't just cure disease. He heals disease. He conquers disease. 
Remember Jairus? He's probably getting frustrated now that this woman got in the way. So they get back to Jairus' house. His daughter has now fallen asleep. That means she's dead. They're actually having a funeral procession. They are leaving the house with the body. And Jesus goes, whoa, she's just sleeping. They all think Jesus is crazy again, but Jesus says, Talithia kum. He says, get up, little girl. The girl hops up and goes, I'm hungry. Can I have something to eat? Sickness that ends in death? Not with Jesus. Because he conquers it. Also great, Todd. So temptation, he's got that. I probably could have figured that out. Uh, If I'm ever in a boat, I'll know to call on Jesus. And um, if my daughter ever gets ill, then I guess we're covered. So what is your point here? Does he conquer anything else? Yeah, let's, let's just get really simple. What about peer pressure? Anyone ever just been faced with an impossible choice? Going, if I do what everyone expects me to do, I know that's not what's going to honor God. I don't know how to overcome that. I have no idea how to conquer this. I'm just such a people pleaser. What do I do? Does anyone ever struggle with that? John chapter 8, this woman is caught in the act of adultery, thrown at the feet of Jesus, probably more shame than she's ever been in her entire life. The Pharisees who caught her in the act, I don't know how they caught her, that's gross, but anyway, they caught her in the act. Pharisees throw her at the feet of Jesus and go, your law, Jesus, the law that you came to fulfill, it says we got to stone her for what she did. And Jesus is in an impossibly sticky situation here because they're right. The law does say that. Jesus says, well, I guess what we're going to do then is whichever one of you doesn't have any sin, go ahead and pick up a stone and chunk it at her. They were confused by this, but that was not going to get them to leave. See, that would have been overcoming the situation. Quote, you know, say something kind of witty. But then Jesus does this. He kneels down and begins to write in the sand. We're not 100% sure what Jesus wrote in the sand. But just a few hours earlier, Jesus had been at a festival, and he had declared that he himself was or is the living water. Jesus said, I am the living water. Whoever drinks from me will not be thirsty. He declared that publicly just a few hours earlier. In Jeremiah chapter 17, there's this interesting passage of Scripture that says the living water will write their names upon the earth. Whose names? The names of the condemned. The names of the wicked. The names of the unrighteous. So Jesus had just been declared the living water. It had ticked off the Pharisees. And now he bends down and writes something on the earth. What is he writing? I think he's writing the names of the condemned. Who were those people? Well, we know from the text that from the oldest to the youngest, the men who had condemned the woman started to leave. So I think he started with the name of the oldest man, who would have known Jeremiah 17 verbatim, who would have realized that the living water just wrote his name on the earth and would have seen that he was in error. I believe he went down to the youngest man, and they all left. And then Jesus, still just doodling. I want to see that picture, but someday. He's just doodling in the sand. He looks up, and it's him and the woman. And he goes, does no one condemn you? With tears, she looks around and says, no. He says, well, then neither do I. Go and sin no more. And Jesus conquered peer pressure. Anyone, your paycheck runs out before the month runs out? Anyone in here like that? You're just, you're wondering when the 30th is going to get here, please, because it's the 26th and I'm out. 
Do you know in John chapter 6, there's a similar story. Jesus has been teaching all day long, and there's 15,000 people listening to him teach, and then he looks at his disciples and he goes, they look hungry, let's feed them. And the disciples go, that would cost a year's worth of wages to buy enough food, not to mention there's no restaurants around here, Jesus, if you didn't look, we're in the wilderness. Jesus goes, well, bring what we have. Do you hear that? Just bring what you got. They find a little boy's lunch, <laughs> who willingly or unwillingly gave it up. They've got a couple of loaves of bread, a little, little pitas, some fish paste. Disciples go, what you going to do with this, big guy? There's 15,000 people, and we got enough food for a small boy. Jesus offers it to God, gives thanks for it, and begins to break the loaves and break the fish. 15,000 people ate that day to their fill, and there were basketfuls of leftovers. You think he can't conquer a resource shortage? That's how you conquer a resource shortage. He's got this. He's not just some guy walking down the road. I believe that if any one of us walked very long with Jesus, we would see that he had the ability and the, and the power to overcome and conquer any situation. And I believe we need to see him as such. We need to put our faith in that kind of a Jesus who can overcome and conquer any situation. Jesus didn't stop with his life. He spent six hours one day on a cross. And on that cross, in those six hours, he conquered something so important. He conquered all of humanity's sin. Everything that came from the fall back in the Garden of Eden, all of the consequences, all of the results, all the actions of our sin, he dealt with those, he conquered those on the cross in six hours one Friday. The five things that Jesus overcame or conquered on the cross are these. Jesus overcame Satan and demons. I don't know if you even acknowledge the existence of Satan, but He's real. And I don't know if that scares you, and if it does, that's probably what he wants. Satan wants you to be afraid, but just hear this. Jesus conquered Satan. Jesus conquered the demons, Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Jesus forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, literally removed it. He did so by nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, Satan and his dominions, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. On the cross, for just a minute, Satan thought he'd won. This man, bleeding and meager, nailed to a cross, Satan goes, you lose. And Jesus goes, by losing, I win. You're done. You're conquered. It's over. Jesus overcame slavery to sin on the cross. I don't know if this is a fun word, but think of being bound. Think of being in chains. Think of being restricted by your sin. That is probably a very good illustration of how you feel. You feel enslaved. You feel encaptured. You, you can't move. Your sin is real. And as much as you try to not sin, it just keeps happening. God's holy people in Egypt, they were enslaved. And God sent Moses to liberate them why? So they could have a happier life? No. He sent Moses to free them 
so that they could worship God freely. And just as Moses was sent to liberate Egypt, Jesus has been sent to liberate us, the whole world, to redeem us from enslavement to sin and to death. Romans 6, 6 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Hallelujah. Jesus conquered slavery to sin. He alone did that. Jesus overcame our sin and gave us his righteousness. It's not one thing just to be freed from the bonds of sin. See, if we have sinned at all, then we are no longer in good standing with God. Any kind of sin separates us from God. We are no longer righteous. So what Jesus did is he took care of that. He conquered it. And what he did is he goes, oh, you're not righteous? Here, have my righteousness. Here, I'll give you my righteousness because yours is insufficient. Jesus makes this most unbelievable exchange with us. He takes our sin, thank you, but then he gives us his righteousness, imputes it upon us. We are righteous because of Jesus alone. Nothing we do can make us righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus overcame the dirt of our sin. I don't know if you're aware of this, but when you sin or when you're sinned against, there's, there's dirt that comes from that. There's guilt. There's residue. There's stickiness. There's dirtiness that comes from sin. There's real consequences that come with sin. Jesus didn't leave them unchecked. He conquered those as well. That is baffling to me that he figures out how to remove guilt even from sin. It's one thing just to forgive sin, but I'm going to remove the guilt that you have from the sin. He did this so we could love him more. He did this because he loves us. 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin, washes us clean as snow. No more stickiness, no more residue, no more guilt. The blood of Jesus washes us pure and clean. Thank you, God, that you overcame even that. And the final thing, Jesus overcame the gap between God and man. When we sinned, our sins separated us from God. God intended for mankind to walk in union and harmony with him, walk in relationship with him, but sin separated us. Jesus takes away our sin and reconciles us, puts us back in good standing and loving relationship with God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I know a lot of people who really desperately want to be good people. They want to be friends with this middle-aged white Jesus because every once in a while they want to be labeled a Christian. But for the most part, their number one desire in life is to be really good. And they want people around them to say, hey, you're a Christian because you're good. But here's the problem, church. Even the best person in here isn't good enough to get back in good grace with God. Jesus does this. We are reconciled to God through Jesus because he becomes our righteousness, because he purifies us from all sins, because he is the one who removes slavery from sin. It's him. It's all him. And today, if you're sitting here and you have not put your trust, your hope, your faith in Jesus, 
If you have not confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you do not believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, if you have not done that, this power, this conquering Jesus, he's not yours. You don't have this power. You don't have his righteousness. You don't have his liberation from sin. You have your good works. You have your best efforts. You have your money and your car and your house and your family. And all those things may be good, but they're not good enough. They're not good enough to separate that gap between you and God. Jesus and Jesus alone does that. And if you do not have him today, I pray. I pray that you see how broken you really are. And how much the stuff that you've replaced God with really isn't that valuable. And how desperately you need a conqueror in your life. Jesus didn't just do these things on the cross. He also overcame death. If you were to be honest with yourself, when faced with the idea of dying, We all are required to do some sort of mental gymnastics. Some of us in here, we accept the fact that we're going to die and we embrace it. Others in here, we're terrified of the fact that death is around the corner for all of us. Some of us, we kind of fluctuate back and forth depending on the day or if we just got in a really close, like, accident. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, I about died. Um, So it really fluctuates for most people. But Jesus conquered death. He conquered it in such a way that we don't have to fear it anymore. For those who are in Christ, we don't have to fear death. The one reality that probably scares most people is dying, and those who are in Christ do not have to fear death anymore because he overcame it. He conquered it. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57. The sting of death is sin. Now, I want you to understand this. If sin had never entered the world, death would not have either. So the sting of death, the fact that death is terrifying, is the fact that there is sin. You have to deal with sin. You can't deal with death. You have to deal with sin. Dealing with sin is what brings eternal life. The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is victory over death through Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and 10. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done. We can't do anything, but because of his own purpose and his grace, because of what God has done. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and who has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ, there is eternal life. There is no other way to eternal life. And I know that's an uncool statement. But here today, for our extents and purposes, I say that unashamedly. There is no other avenue to eternal life it is jesus and jesus alone is the hope of the gospel because he alone has conquered death the tomb was empty jesus conquered death death awaits us all but there's one who conquered it he conquered sin and death and grace calls us to receive him as our conqueror everyone who has need needs jesus And if you have Jesus, if you've accepted him, then this next part applies to you. 
If you do not have Jesus, then this next part does not apply to you, but we can fix that. For those who are in Christ, I want you to hear this. I want it to just resonate with you. For those who are in Christ, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you. Did you hear that? For those of you who have Christ, that same power, and I don't know what kind of mystery he did, but like whatever God did to get Jesus alive in that tomb, that power, that mystery, that greatness, it is alive in you, in you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 11, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give you life. He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. So Holy Spirit, come. I want that life. I want that resurrection power. Ephesians 1, 18 through 20. Paul prays that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. I pray that too, church, that your eyes would be open to Jesus because Jesus is your hope. He is the only hope. Without him, you have no hope. Whatever you think you hope in, you do not hope in. So I pray that your eyes would be open to the hope that you have because that hope that you have is Jesus. I just pray that you will all see this. The hope that he has called you to. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. What, what are the riches? What do we inherit when we become a child of God? Great question. What we inherit is his incomparably great power for us who believe. The same power, the same strength that raised Jesus from the dead. We get that when we put our hope in Jesus Christ. I'll take that, please. I would like that. I would like to have that power and the promise of the inheritance for those who are in Christ Jesus is that same exact power. Yes, please. Yes, please, Lord, I'll take that. May I walk in your conquering strength. May I hope in your infinite hope. May your grace be sufficient for all of my needs. I'll take Jesus. That power is the same power as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. The same power conquering power that raised Jesus is for those who put their faith in Christ. As Nick comes back out here, just think about this for a second. How different would your life look if you believed this? How different would your life look if you put your trust and your hope fully in this conquering king, Jesus Christ? What would be different about you if you truly believed if you truly believe that this kind of power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, was alive in you, was available to you, the same conquering power was in you, what if you believed that? What current struggle that you're going through would just disappear? What current obstacle that you don't think there's any outcome for would just vanish because of the conquering power that raised Jesus from the dead? Is there a sickness in your life? Are you struggling with disease? Are, are you hurting because you don't know the outcome? Like the woman who 12 years has gone to doctors with nothing and then one moment is healed. What sickness would be conquered? What doubt or fear just terrifies you? Is it a doubt that Jesus is Lord? Is it a fear that, that there is no afterlife, that there is no eternity, that there is no heaven? What, what fear would be conquered immediately if you just put your trust in Jesus Christ? I promise you right now that even, even though 
in Christ, I still have doubts. I say, just like the centurion, Lord, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. His power comes and allows me to overcome doubt. And in perfect love, it casts out all fear. The perfect love of Christ, there is no fear in that. There's no fear of sickness and death. What material need would be met if you simply believed that the conquering power of Jesus Christ was alive in you? If you simply believed it, just trusted in it, trusted him, what temptation would be done away with? What about death? What about the fear of death? What about the unknown, the uncertainty of death? How quickly would it be conquered if you simply put your trust in Jesus Christ? I pray today that your eyes will be opened, that your hearts will be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which you've been called. That hope is Jesus Christ. And for those of you who are in it, Hebrews 12, 28 will govern our response today. Hebrews 12, 28 just says this, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, in Christ, his rule and his reign is a conquering king, his kingdom, the kingdom that we receive, this world can't shake it, church. Amen? He, they can't, it can't be shaken. And we receive a kingdom that can't be shaken. So with thanksgiving, let's worship God acceptably with reverence and awe because what kind of God gives his only son? What kind of God sends his one and only son to earth to become sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God? That's a good God, and he's worthy of my praise. He's worthy of my worship. Today, as we respond, our pastors and our prayer team are going to be up here. We're going to sing. We're going to respond in awe and reverence to God. We're going to thank him for Jesus. We're going to accept Jesus. If you need to respond to this word, you need to accept Jesus. You need prayer because you're sick and you don't want to be sick anymore. You need prayer because you're afraid and you don't want to be afraid anymore. You need, you need prayer because finances just aren't there and you don't want that anymore. Whatever you want God to conquer in your life, just come and let us pray that. And I believe it will happen. Let our pastors and our prayer team members pray for you. Come when we stand and when we sing. But otherwise, let's worship him in reverence and awe because he's good. Amen? He's really good. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I just pray that we respond to you and to your truth, that we would allow you to be our conquering king, our Savior and our Lord. God, we put our only trust in you, all of our hope in you. Nothing else, nothing else in this world compares to you. You are great, God. You are great, God. There is no God greater. So we give you all of our love and all of our affection and all of our worship and reverence and awe, and we give it to you now in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's stand and respond to him. And if you need prayer, come on down.